This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.21, Rocket Man, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and I remember slightly more of my childhood than Four does. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and feeling deep sympathy for Four and her headaches. Haven't you had a migraine for like four days? It's a more complicated question than Tom realizes. I have had headaches of one sort or another for four days, but not all of them have been migraines. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 255 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Zach H, Quinage, Nick H, William R, and Will M. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. And don't forget that we still want your questions for our upcoming Q&A episode. We'll publish the episode on November 16th, but we need your questions by November 2nd if you want them to be considered. We also want to hear your Gundam takes for our first ever forum episode, that one will come out on November 23rd, but we do need those by November 10th. You should send your questions and your opinions to us by email to gundampodcast at gmail.com and just put Q&A or forum in the subject line so that it doesn't get lost. And thank you to everybody who's already sent us something. But now, back to episode 2.21. This week, we discuss Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 20, The Heated Escape. We also research and discuss the Titans New Guinea base and shuttle boosters. But first, let's tune in to the Titans News Network for a reminder of last week's events. And that's why Hong Kong had it coming. Up next, we'll have more of the news you need as we continue our investigation into the tax evasion allegations still dogging entrepreneur and venture capitalist Wong Lee. But first, a special message for our younger viewers. It's time once again for Triple T, Titans Tips for Teens. What is up, my pals? Even though I am an adult with a fully formed frontal lobe, I am also cool and sensitive to your unique needs. I like to change it up by turning my chair around backwards before sitting in it. That way you know that I am currently being real with you for a second, just like I am right now. Being a teen can be hard. You've got to worry about pop quizzes, whether your crush likes you back, and the ever-present threat of AUG. But your friends in the Titans and here at TNN are always looking out for you. So let me spill the triple T and give you some Titan tips for teens. Now that you're a teen, you might be feeling some confusing new feelings. 
You might find yourself attracted to the childhood friend who's always been at your side, the one who's been taking care of you in place of your neglectful parents for as long as you can recall. Or you might feel that thing called love at first sight when you meet someone new. Teens with strong intuition can even feel like they perfectly understand each other after no more than a few minutes together. Those feelings are perfectly natural, and most young people will experience them at some point. But that doesn't mean you should rush into romance. Romance can be dangerous, and that's doubly true in troubled times like these. Titan's experts studying the one-year war have shown that kissing can increase the likelihood of violent death by as much as 60%. And you never know if your crush is really the one, or just, one of the enemy. That's right, that attractive young person might actually be a spacenoid agent just waiting to take advantage of your feelings in order to lure you into treason. So the next time you're sharing a romantic rendezvous on the rooftop of an office building, and your crush tries to peer pressure you into running away and joining AUG, just say no. If your resolve starts to waver, just think about everyone and everything you care about, and ask yourself, what would happen to all of them if I joined AUG? What would the Titans do? And if they still won't take no for an answer, you just leave and contact the Titans tip line right away. We'll do what needs to be done to make sure that person never bothers you or anyone else ever again. If you still feel bad afterwards, our Titans therapists recommend you do something cathartic to make yourself feel better, like destroying anything and everything that reminds you of your traitorous crush. Burn their photos, throw away any gifts, maybe even wreck the rooftop where you kissed. Go nuts! As the Titans motto says, violence always solves everything. It can be hard to walk away from someone who's pretending to like you in order to get you to join their side. But someone like that isn't really your thirsty bae or your fam. They're just salty, and you should cancel them right away. When you're ready for a relationship, you'll find the right person. Someone who shares your Earth-first values and will accept you for who you are. Then you can stand the Titans together, and that will be truly lit. 100%. And now the recap for The Heated Escape. After the intensity of their last confrontation with Four and the Psycho Gundam, Amuro goes to check on Camille but receives no answer when he knocks on the door. Running into him in the hall, Beltorchka invites Amuro back to her room for coffee, and when he begs off, she confronts him. He's avoiding her, and she's disappointed. She thought he was different. She thought he was someone who wouldn't get caught up in battle. Amuro shoots back that it's natural for the battle to be on his mind, and he's surprised that she can't understand that, now that she is starting to see the realities of war. It's clear what Beltorchka is really angry about. She can tell that Amuro wants to return to space. He talks about how it wouldn't just be good for him, it would also help Camille's development as a pilot. But all Beltorchka hears is that he wants to leave, and she accuses him of using Camille. On the Sudori, Wooder plans their next attack on the Adumla. He goads Four, reminding her that if she is unsuccessful, the Titans may just shut the Murasame lab down completely, and her memories would be lost forever. Whether she gets them back is entirely up to her. She only needs to slow the Audumla so that the Sudori can catch it. 
I won't let the Titans get in my way, she shouts as she runs for the Psycho Gundam and sets off after the Ayug ship. Camille wakes to klaxons blaring and rushes for the hangar. Amuro has already launched in Eric Diaz, and the Oduma launches the Nemos after him before engaging in evasive maneuvers of its own. Darting around the Psycho Gundam, Amuro manages to distract Four at just the right moment. Her shot at the Oduma goes wide, but he gets too close and suddenly the Psycho Gundam grabs hold of the Rick Diaz. There is no possibility of getting free, and it looks as though this might be it for Amuro, when out of nowhere Four is racked with pain. Her headaches are back. She feels as if her head will split in two, and they begin to freefall toward the sea. Amuro takes the opportunity to get loose and fly back to defend the Audumla. Four retreats, and the Ayug mobile suits destroy all of the Sudori's hijacks. On the Sudori, Four holds her head in her hands while Namikar berates her. How can she have retreated in the middle of battle? What is she thinking? Four murmurs that she's tired, her head hurts, and she clutches a now empty bottle of medicine in her hand. Namikar hits her, a ringing slap that leaves a bright red mark on Four's cheek. Don't you want your memory back? All I need to do is write one report and it will be done, Namikar tells her. Four looks as though she might cry. Namikar continues, telling her, You must fight. You are a perfect new type. You simply need to prove it. And Four seems to steel herself. Her brow furrows, and she gets up to return to battle. With the loss of their mobile suits, the Sudori's fighting strength has been reduced to almost zero. Determined to stop the Adumla at any cost, Woder announces to the crew that he will be making a suicide attack with the ship itself. They should all abandon ship at once. The crew on the bridge hesitate, but Woder urges them to leave. A small group of officers join him, announcing their intention to stay aboard. Woder puts them all on the ship's guns, with the goal of fending off the Ayug mobile suits during their approach. At the same time, the Argama is positioning itself in Earth orbit. But without a shuttle, how will Camille get to them? The Ayug pilots all have a brief rest, although they know the Sudori is on their tail. While Camille prepares, Beltorchka comes up to him and tells him that she doesn't want Amuro to go with him. Angry, Camille asks if she thinks he's not strong enough. It's not that, but Amuro tries too hard when he's around you. He's going to get hurt. Camille points out the obvious. He can't control Amuro's behavior. And Beltorchka tries to get him to promise to bring Amuro back safely instead. The alarm sounds and Camille takes off running, shouting over his shoulder that Beltorchka's selfishness could get a man killed. He rushes to be the first out of the hangar. Still refusing to attack Four, Camille dodges her shots, ducking in and out of the clouds. He tells Amuro to leave the Psycho Gundam to him, and Amuro shifts his focus to the Sudori, now closing in on the Audumla. Four is fast, shockingly fast, and grabs hold of the Mark II's arms. It looks as though the Psycho Gundam might tear the Mark II apart, but Camille calls out to her. He tells her he's coming over and that she should open her hatch. She yells at him to stop, but opens her hatch anyway, and the two young pilots are face to face once more. Climbing into her cockpit, Camille begins to tell Four all about himself. That his parents died after getting caught up in the current conflict. What their jobs were. That he grew up on Green Oasis 1 with a friend who was more a mother to him than his own mother. His hobbies, his need to prove himself. He begins to cry, and Four cradles his head in her lap. The tender moment ends when Four pulls a gun. We should both go back to where we belong, she says. When Camille asks if she's sure, she fires a warning shot. That's enough! 
she yells, voice cracking with emotion. If you get close to me again, I'll really shoot, do you understand? Camille retreats back to his own cockpit and their mobile suits close up on them. Without warning, Four immediately takes the Psycho Gundam and crashes it into the side of the Sudori. From the hangar, she positions one of the boosters out under the wing, then smashes the controls so that it cannot be brought back in. When Wooder demands to know what she's doing, she fires at him, and his return fire catches her in the shoulder. The moment the bullet hits Four, she is wrapped in a red aura, and Amaro and Camille both sense her. Yet it's only Amaro who can hear Four's intentions. She wants Camille to take the booster from the Sudori and return to space. At first, Camille doesn't want to leave Amaro behind, but Amaro insists. Camille will need someone to cover him, and besides, Four has risked her life to help him. He will regret it if he ignores her sacrifice. Camille hooks himself to the shuttle booster, but catches sight of Four staggering toward the Psycho Gundam and can see that she is wounded. From a gun turret, Wooder fires at Camille, and Amaro crashes the Rick Diaz into Wooder. As explosions rock the Sudori, the smoke blocks all view of Four and the Psycho Gundam, and Camille finally launches. An explosion knocks Amaro free before the Sudori breaks up completely. The Aduma picks him up, wounded, and Beltorchka sits vigil at his bedside. In space, the Argama slows and adjusts course, sweeping past Camille and the Mark II so that they can grab the tow line trailing behind the ship. Camille has finally returned to space. The Earth part of the story is over. Camille is back in space, Wooder is dead, Four is maybe dead, Amuro is wounded, and the Sidori is destroyed. That sounds like it about covers it, yeah. <laughs> end of episode, nothing more to discuss. <laughs> it's a pretty comprehensive end to this section of the story, even if it doesn't really give us any answers about what is going to happen to Amuro. Oh, Amuro. Why do we think he was avoiding Beltorchka at the beginning of the episode? I think he had maybe decided he wanted to go back to space. Before the events of the episode made that impossible, I think that was what he had decided to do. For his own improvement, and so that he can keep guiding Camille. Yeah, and when Beltorchka accuses him of using Camille, I'm not sure that she actually believes that. I think she just... Uh, is mad, is hurt, right, wants it, to lash out. It seems like she is just angry that Amuro is willing to leave her behind. <laughs> she could go to space. It's not like she's doing anything here anyway, <laughs> seriously. What is she doing? This was the episode where I looked up and was like, wait a second. She's been with them for ages. She doesn't do anything. Yeah. Is After it, she guided them to Hickory, she hasn't really had a job except... Hound Amuro. <laughs> I mean, presumably because she flies this kind of silly old reproduction plane, she can't fly very far in it. But, like, where is she supposed to be based? What is she supposed to be doing? A big shrug over here. We haven't even seen the biplane since they got to Hong Kong. Maybe they traded it to Luo and Co. in exchange for black market weapons. And a lot of her peevishness seems to come from this idea that 
she's misjudged Amuro somehow. They're like, you're not like Quattro. You don't get caught up in battle in that way. But then he seems to be, from her outside view, caught up in battle in the way that Quattro is caught up in the battle. I don't think it's the same at all, but... <laughs> and yet in this episode when Amuro is talking about battles and how Beltorchka is only just now starting to realize what they're really like, he does seem to be saying that there's something entrancing about them that it's natural to get caught up in battles. I mean, he said something similar to Stephanie when they were watching the battle in Hong Kong many episodes ago. He acknowledges it both as natural and a necessity. Like if you're going to be enmeshed in it, then one of the realities of war is that you're in it. Like <laughs> you, you can't not think about it. Mm -hmm. Beltorchka's expectations of Amaro, what she wanted him to be and what she expected him to be and the ways in which he disappointed her, had so much power over him at first. <laughs> her influence has declined. Well, she wanted him to be less afraid and more confident. And the less afraid and more confident he was, the less he cared what she had to say about it. <laughs> Funny how that happens. Be careful what you wish for. As a love how... Every time she asks anyone for anything, she does her little, like, cute hair flip, and she always opens with, but you care about Amuro, don't you? Or, do you hate Amuro? Or, like, she always appeals to how people feel about Amuro. It, it never has anything to do with her. <laughs> She's never asking for herself for anything. It's always, oh, you, you care about Amuro, right? Then do me this favor, but actually do the favor for Amuro? <laughs> yeah. I also love how both transparently manipulative she's trying to be and how completely unsuccessful she is with Mirai, with Camille. Like, yep. she doesn't get anything from them that they weren't already willing to give her. But her lived experience may be that if she doesn't manipulate people, she doesn't get what she wants. Like, oh, yeah, I'm like, sure. That's absolutely something she picked up somewhere. <laughs> Probably because she's accustomed to not getting the care and support from her attachment figures <laughs> that she actually requires unless she's willing to play the heartstrings. And I think this goes to show just how these unhealthy coping mechanisms that Beltorchka has developed, and not just Beltorchka, right? This is basically all the characters in Zeta, but they've developed all of these coping mechanisms that are completely unsuited to their current lives and are really holding them back in so many ways. Speaking of her perceptions of Amuro, though, do you think Amuro is trying too hard with Camille? Yeah, actually, I do. Oh. I think Amuro is really, really trying to uh, impress Camille, but also outdo Camille and also keep Camille safe. Hmm. I got more of the impression of him wanting to impress Camille early on. I don't really get that anymore. I do get the strong sense that he wants to keep Camille safe. I don't really buy into Beltorchka's concern, though. Like, this is how Amuro fights. <laughs> he was always a bit reckless. You know? Sure. He was always going 110. He does seem to get pretty significantly wounded at the end of this episode, though. Well, he crashes his Rick Diaz into the side of the Sidori. Oh, yeah. And then back out again, somehow. He's able to do... He lost an arm, though. He gets exploded out when the shuttle booster goes off inside the Sidori. Well, and I think he has to, like, shake himself free, too, though, because mm -hmm. one of his arms, he, like, leads with an arm... And it's, he's the one who takes out Wooder because Wooder is in that um, ball turret. Wooder gets uh, squished. Yeah, it's, it's pretty horrible. Um, but I think his arm is stuck. And then when the blast goes off, he has to like tear himself free. And that's how he loses the gun and the arm. Mm -hmm. 
And this is after he already got jarred around in the cockpit so hard that the faceplate on his helmet broke. Yes. He ends the episode in bed with Beltorchka looking after him. She's certainly doing vigil (laughs) at his bedside. I don't know how much use she is. I would also argue, though, that getting injured in war is not, strictly speaking, a sign of going too hard. You're right. You're right. But I do think Amuro is being selfless. He's putting Camille's interests above his own in a way that Beltorchka doesn't like. Yes, because Beltorchka is selfish. Yes, she is. And I think Amuro's focus on Camille has maybe transitioned from a sense of competitiveness early on to this feeling expressed in the last couple of episodes that Camille is different, but has the potential to be so much more. And unspoken in that, that Amaro has a desire to help him achieve that. And maybe even from Amaro's perspective, a duty, that this is what Amaro can do as an adult for the next generation. Do you think Amaro is conscious of himself and Quattro as potentially two different possible guardians, two different possible shepherds for this next generation, and even a sense of, well, I might not be the best person to lead this young guy, but if I don't do it, Quattro will, (laughs) and that guy is a bad influence. You don't see much of that in these episodes, but he did give cats the gun. And you get it in this episode from Hayato, whose last line in the episode when Camille is rocketing off into the atmosphere is, Don't lose your way, Camille. My last couple of notes about Amuro have to do with him and Four, actually. First, that I don't think it's a coincidence that she's about to kill Amuro when her headaches set in. Concur. (laughs) There's some some new type reverb going on. There, I think. Yeah, maybe some of that feeling of pressure that people keep talking about. And she is so supremely sensitive to it. She's been trained, engineered for that sensitivity. Oh, and she's hooked into the Psycho Gundam, which is magnifying all of it. That their proximity, even though Amaro's not freaking out or anything, he's just like, oh, this is not a great situation. (laughs) Keep fighting. Um, Brings on these headaches for her. I don't know if you noticed this, but in that scene, we briefly see that contrary to what I thought, Four is actually hooked into the Psycho Gundam via a wire that connects to her helmet. I had not seen that. Yeah. Very interesting. um, They're not super consistent with drawing (laughs) it. Uh, They're not even consistent with drawing which part of her helmet it attaches to, but there is a cord there. It's on the left side of her body, so you can see it in a couple of shots, and you see it when she has the headache. And notably, when she has the headache, she sort of shakes her head, and the cord becomes detached. Mm. It's later attached again, but I do think maybe when she's having the headache, she, like, shakes it off to try to disconnect from the Psycho Gundam's, like, amplification of her powers possibly but that's what causes or at least that immediately precedes her crashing into the water and retreating you know her headaches last time started about when the battle started over the water so something about the activity of other new types or the presence of other new types is triggering these crippling headaches that she has the other neat little tidbit that's passed off very subtly i think but seems significant When she puts the booster out and she's wounded and, you know, there's chaos, there's a battle going on, explosions, smoke, suicide attacks, 
Amro is the one who can feel and understand Four's intent, not Camille. Amro is the one that says she wants you to take the booster. She wants you to get to space. You have to go. Like she's making this huge sacrifice for you. She has this good, kind intent for you. You cannot ignore it. If you ignore it, you will regret it forever. I will cover you. You need to go now. Camille feels something. Right. He's like, "Oh, what was that?" And Amaro is like, "I know exactly what it was. <laughs> Move your butt." Amaro, the new type guru. You know, Amaro, if you wanted to convince all of us that new types aren't espers, maybe stop having psychic communications with other new types. He would tell you that he is simply very intuitive. He might say that, but what level of intuition is necessary to interpret someone's brain feelings as a complete <laughs> sentence? This is done very subtly in that moment, so I can't be 100% certain that it's intended, but I'm pretty sure Amaro threatens Camille with his Rick Diaz's gun to get Camille onto the booster, just like Four did earlier. Amaro definitely points the gun in Camille's direction when he's saying, you need to go into space. Let's talk about that a minute, because I particularly enjoyed the scene of Camille and Four having their heart-to-heart -heart as they fall through the air. <laughs> You mean when Four breaks up with Camille at gunpoint? Yes. I use the phrase heart-to-heart -heart very deliberately. They open up their cockpits and bring their cockpits physically close together. They are literally opening their hearts to each other. And during this heart-to-heart, -heart, Camille spills his guts. He opens up his heart and he tells Four, like, all his most intimate secrets. I have been wondering since maybe last episode sometime, perhaps one before, if we aren't meant to read something into the relative sizes of the Psycho Gundam and the other mobile suits, the Psycho Gundam is like an adult next to the little mobile <laughs> suits like children. Yeah. And the way Camille lays his head in her lap while he cries, it, it feels very mom stuff. And he's confessing how he has this childhood friend who mothered him instead of his mother. And how he hated that. Although he sort of deflects that and says what he hated was his name. <laughs> Though I, I don't suspect. Buy it. No, I'm I don't either. But we know Camille has some weird mom stuff. Yep. It feels like maybe this is tied up in that. I feel so bad for her in this episode. Because I think when she sends him away, she's feeling torn over the fact that She's been explicitly told, if you destroy the Mark II, if you complete your mission to our satisfaction, we will give you your memories back. And if you don't, you will never have them ever, ever. We will make sure of it. We will close down the new type lab and your memories will be deleted forever. And the more she cares for Camille, the harder it will be to complete her mission. The more she knows about him, the harder it will be to complete her mission. Every time he reaches out to her in this way, it makes it harder for her. She's in an impossible bind. And ultimately, she chooses to help him get away. And when she does, she says, does this mean I won't have to forget again? Which implies to me that her memory issues are not only in the past. She didn't lose her memory at some point, but maybe that she has a problem of recurring amnesia. She continuously loses her memories. And when she says, does this mean I won't have to forget again? Does she mean because she's going to die? I didn't quite take it that far. My interpretation there was that she was thinking she won't be re-traumatized in a way that will make her forget more things. Mm -hmm. 
In the previous episode, Camille suggested that four should simply move on and make new memories. Mm -hmm. And her response was, what good are new memories if I don't have the old ones? How can I move forward with my life if I don't know who I am, where I've been? Now she's in an even more impossible position because she's realizing what good are my old memories if I kill Camille? What good is it to know who I am if the end result of that is that I destroy this beautiful thing that I'm just now starting to experience? She's a desperate woman in a desperate situation. And she, like Amaro, ultimately chooses self-sacrifice for Camille's sake. We've argued about this before, that Wooder and Namikar's concern for Four is self-concern, is very self-interested, and they're really not looking after her or looking out for her. But I think some points on my side come up in this episode. Wooder pretty blatantly goads her, we will shut down the lab if you fail. True. And Namikar's reaction to Four, like, going on the fritz on the battlefield, coming back early, and sitting at a table with an empty bottle of medicine is to yell at her and slap her and tell her that she needs to go out there and be perfect. So I agree with you, um, especially for Namikar. She does not look good in this episode. For a character who already didn't look good, this episode really does not uh, help her image at all. In that scene, I saw her as basically trying every tool in her motivation toolbox. She slaps for, she threatens for, she offers for the memory as just being so close. All she needs to do is write one report and four will get her memory back. But then I saw the talk about her being perfect as like praise, as the last thing in her toolbox she's going to try praising for. You are perfect. perfect. You can't be stopped. You're the ultimate new type. Go get him, champ. She doesn't express any concern over four's exhaustion or the headaches. And how much of what little concern she does show is the fact that, guess what? If they shut down Murasame Lab, who's out of a job? <laughs> yeah. With her past, you know, decades work or however long she's been doing it, basically disproven. Right. Yeah. I am fully on your side for this episode, at least as far as Namikar is concerned. Namikar's concern is only Namikar. And for her, four only matters insofar as four can advance or hamper her own career. I'm not so certain about Wooder, though. I think he looks pretty good in this episode. He definitely does sort of taunt Four there at the beginning, mostly because I think he's an <laughs> But he also tells her, like, you don't need to destroy it. You just need to, you just slow need to slow down. it down. This all depends on your accomplishments. Why does Wooder decide on the suicide attack? I know the reason he gives. In the episode, he says... Something about, you know, all our mobile suits have been destroyed. All we've got is the Psycho Gundam and it's not enough. We don't have time for new equipment. But why not retreat and fight another day? Like, why is it so worthwhile to destroy the Audumla that it's worth sacrificing the Sudori and a bunch of the crew, including himself? Well, we can't know for certain. He doesn't give us enough evidence for that. Uh, a few episodes back, he did mention that he was trying to avenge Blutark's death. Mm. And if you go all the way back to episode 1.11, we had a research piece on Kataki, the quest for revenge, and just how essential it is to complete it or die trying. Because once you start the quest for revenge, you can't go home again unless you've been successful. So that could be it. But unlike Isolina, Wooder has never seemed so completely devoted to the quest for revenge that that alone would explain his decision here. 
especially when you consider that for Wooder and Blutark earlier on, it really seemed like their obsession with bringing down the Adumla came down to competition with others within the Titans. Right. So maybe he's just, he feels like his honor has been slighted and he needs to cleanse the shame from his record. Or maybe he's concerned that if he retreats, this will count against him as a staggeringly huge failure and he'll be executed or worse. It stood out to me. I think this has been true of the crew of the story all along, but did you notice that when a bunch of the officers come and say that they're going to stay on the ship with him, they're all feddies. Oh, yeah. Not one of them is a Titan. I think Wooder and Blutark have been the only Titans aboard the ship, plus maybe Rosamia and four if the new type lab pilots count as Titans. And that goes for the pilots, too. Those Hyzaks have all been painted in Federation colors. Mm -hmm. I don't think the new type pilots are Titans because Namikar is not a Titan. At one point in a previous episode, Wooder tells her, like, he tries to poach her, basically. It's like, oh, you know, you'd have much more freedom with your research if you worked for the Titans. So some of the new type labs have been taken over by the Titans. We heard Hayato talking to some of the other Karaba guys about about a new type lab in California that was taken over by the Titans. It sounds like Murasame is not, but Augusta might be, so Rosamiya might technically be a Titan, even if four is not. But I'm not certain uh, where those labs stand at this point in the series. That scene with all of the Federation officers coming in and volunteering to stay with Wooder made me think a couple of things. First of all, they asked to stay with him, not with the ship. And this makes sense because we know that they only recaptured the Sudori fairly recently. So this is not like the crew that's been with the Sudori forever. These are the people who came in with Blutark and Wooder and took it over when they attacked Kennedy. Presumably these are officers who have been serving under Wooder and Blutark for some time. So their loyalty is to Wooder and Blutark personally. And that makes me think Wooder and Blutark were Federation officers who were only fairly recently enrolled into the Titans. A language thing that I found humorous in those scenes. One of the sort of customary phrases that you use in Japanese if you're, say, leaving work and some of your coworkers are still there, like you're not the last one to leave, you say, like, osaki ni shitsureshimasu. And it, in a literal kind of way, means, like, sorry, I'm leaving first. <laughs> Takes on some dark tones when it's, my captain is about to crash this plane into another plane and I'm leaving the bridge. Is that what the pilots say? Those two guys who he says they're like uncertain if they should leave or not. And he tells them to go and they say, Osaki ni shitsureshimasu. Wow. Yep. <laughs> yeah, dark, dark tones there. Wooder also gets that great moment at the beginning of the episode when he's on the bridge talking to his officers and asking them, when are the Hyzaks going to be ready? When are we going to catch up to the Audumla? And they can't give him an answer. They just keep saying, oh, they're almost ready. Oh, we've almost caught up to them. And he gets so mad at them for not being more precise. And he shoots four, although we don't know yet whether that's deadly. She looks in a bad way. But it wasn't an obvious kill shot. Yeah, I guess she gets shot twice, once in the leg and then once in the back of the left shoulder. Mm. She does make it back into the Psycho Gundam before the two shuttle boosters that were on the Sudori, even after she released the first one, explode. Yeah. 
And while the shuttle boosters had not been important until just now, just this episode, they brought the shuttle boosters onto the Sudori like many episodes ago. And make a thing of it. Like, oh, why did they send us these? I don't know. I guess they were just trying to get rid of them. And then in one of the intervening episodes, there's a whole bit about them like checking the shuttle boosters and making sure that they work. So the show has been building toward this for a while now, even if we didn't know it was happening. After everything that's happened, the first person Camille asks about when he arrives on the Argama is Fa. He looks at the crew. Emma's there. Bright is there. Ponytail is there. Astanaji is there. And a few others. But not Cats or Quattro or Fa. And it's Fa he asks for. I assume that all of his everything with four has to have him thinking about Fa. What's she doing? Has she managed to escape this war? Is she safe? Is she available to comfort him? But does he want mom stuff from her or girlfriend stuff from her? I'm sure he has no clue. <laughs> I doubt he even knows where the line between those is. Ooh. Perhaps after the, let's call it excitement of being around four, Camille is ready for somebody who is not that kind of exciting. <laughs> Someone who is less likely to shoot him or shoot at him. Or use a mobile suit to crush him to death. Or sacrifice her life to help him escape. Someone who is unlikely to do either of those two poles of things. We see Fa and Camille fight, and there's clearly a little bit of like teenage, teenagery stuff happening there. But it's on a totally different scale from what Four experiences and how Four acts. That's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> The first thing that occurred to me when Camille asked after Fa was that his experience with Four had maybe taught him to appreciate Fa more than he had previously. We know before she was just some girl who nagged him all the time and he hated it. Now he's had some other experiences and maybe he appreciates that there's someone who knows him and looks after him. And his conversation with Four when he's talking about his name and how he's come now to like it because it's his speaks to Camille becoming more at peace with who he is and what his life is and the people in it. But I need to mention that there was some heavy groaning on my part when Camille is talking to Veltorchka and he's like, ugh, woman's selfishness. It could get a man killed, you know, as if somehow selfishness is an emotion unique to women <laughs> or only deadly when it's women. I don't know. Point is, he is very sexist and I don't like it. He does have some sexist moments. I don't like them either. You mentioned Camille's misogyny, but Camille also has a nice little description of how toxic masculinity has warped his life when he's in the cockpit with four. Because he has this whole thing about how with his parents giving him no attention and his home life falling apart, he threw himself into all of these pursuits that he thought would prove what a man he was. Martial arts, mobile suit building, glider flying. Yeah, it's just that in that same conversation, he also brings up, "Ugh, my mom liked her job too much. With the implication that either she shouldn't have been working or she shouldn't have liked her job. I don't like, <laughs> it feels very much like a, I don't know about these working mothers. Look at how messed up their kids are. His dad messed him up by being a horrible person. His mom messed him up just by working. Like, 
I think Camille's mom messed him up by neglecting him. I don't think that was necessarily because of her job, but... I don't either, but he seems to attribute it to that. Well, it's a lot easier to assign the blame to specific things like your mom liking her job too much than it is to accept that your mom was just not a very good mom. It's the same thing with Camille's feelings about the toxic masculinity stuff, right? Like he can be aware that this is a problem without being over it. Just because he can identify that he did all of these things because he had a desperate yearning to prove that he was a man doesn't mean that he's actually gotten over that need. The need to prove that he is a man. And that feeling like he has to differentiate himself from women's stuff, that he has to be so manly, is probably driving his thinking about women as very othered, like woman's selfishness. That's how women are. Not me. I'm different. I'm a man. And going back a couple of episodes to when he's defending Hong Kong and Stephanie talks to him very seriously, but also sort of vulnerable on her part of like, it's very, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Like, we need you to do this. If you can't, lots of people will die. And he mentions getting a very different feeling from her than four. And he's got this mental distinction between, like, a woman who is sensitive and vulnerable and depending on me versus a woman who really doesn't need anything from me. <laughs> And so this is the slow, difficult, step-by-step process for Camille to realize that women are people <laughs> who are different. They're not all my mother. <laughs> this some, is a real head-scratcher. I'm going to need some time to process this. Some of them are Wong Lee. <laughs> you mean some women are my dad? <laughs> all right. Now you're really confusing the boy. That boy is desperately confused. Pretty much all the time. In a way, I think this is Camille's deal all over, that he can look at the things in his life and in his mind and his feelings in the world. Just he looks at everything and he can see that there are problems. He can feel that there are problems. And yet that doesn't allow him to overcome them necessarily. And it doesn't mean that he's not still trapped by them. Well, he's still affected by the system. He can recognize parts of the system around him and still be entrenched in it. He can recognize them, object to them, want to change them, and yet the toxin is already in his bloodstream. For our research this week, we have a quick note about the Japanese title of the episode, some interesting historical parallels for the Titans New Guinea base, and some research on shuttle boosters. The Japanese title for this episode is Shakunetsu no Dashutsu. We've seen Dashutsu many times before in episodes involving escapes, but Shakunetsu is a new word for me. It has two meanings. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> it can mean to burn red hot or incandescent. Or it can mean burning with passion or enthusiasm, or having emotions run high. The dual meaning works really well for this episode, given that we have both the burning red of the Mark II and the Argama in the atmosphere, and the intense emotion of the escape among not just Camille and Four, but Wooder and Amaro as well. I'm not sure there's a word in English that would capture that same double meaning, maybe fiery, the fiery escape. The heated escape doesn't quite. I think ardent might technically do it, but that is not a common word. 
<laughs> no. And I didn't know that ardent could have like a physical meaning. I thought ardent was always about feelings. It's a very archaic meaning, but ah. it can mean burning or glowing. Interesting. That makes sense. Early on in this episode, before the Titans catch up to the Audumla and things get exciting, Amuro and Hayato are discussing their plan A for getting Camille and maybe Amuro back into space, and that's a surprise attack on the Titans' newly established New Guinea base. While they talk, Hayato flips through a few images of that base provided by Luo and company. A couple of the pictures are maps, and although they're only on screen for a few seconds, several of them seem to depict the same location one with a distinct arrangement of natural features. There's a large bay, which is roughly trapezoidal in shape, between what looks like a peninsula above and a more gradually sloping coast below. Two rivers terminate in the bay, creating a lowland area between them that is separated from both the peninsula and the coast. The river closer to the peninsula is wider, but it only travels a little way inland. The one closer to the coast is narrower but longer, traveling off the edge of the map. There's a circle drawn on the map that seems to suggest the location of the Titan's base, and if so, it's in the area between the rivers, closer to the longer of the two. There are even a few topographical marks on one of the maps, suggesting that the bay and the base are surrounded by highlands, or even mountains. And there are no islands in the bay, at least not close enough to the base to be depicted. That is all quite specific. And by this point, Gundam has a pretty good track record for using small details like that to depict real, actual places. So I went hunting for a place on the coast of New Guinea with features that roughly match those. Now, New Guinea is the second largest island in the world, so it has a lot of coast, and that means an abundance of bays, rivers, and mountains. But after spending a few hours poring over satellite photos of the region, I'm pretty sure that there is only one spot with just the right arrangement of coasts, rivers, mountains, and human settlements. I'm sure that long-time listeners of this podcast are going to be just shocked, shocked and flabbergasted to learn that the spot with the matching geography also happens to have deep ties to both European colonialism and Japanese imperialism. This, I'm sure, is all just one huge coincidence. But let's rewind a second. New Guinea is a large island immediately north of Australia. It's at the eastern edge of Indonesia, west of the Solomon Islands, and about 4,200 kilometers due south of the Sunrise Studio offices in western Tokyo. It's known by many names, which shouldn't be surprising given that the island has around 1,000 indigenous languages. There are around 7,000 languages spoken in the world total, and one-seventh of them are spoken here. The most common name for the island besides New Guinea is Papua, the name used in Bahasa Indonesian. There's a lot of power and politics wrapped up in what you call a place, but Zeta Gundam calls this island New Guinea, and I'm going to follow their lead just to keep things consistent. New Guinea has been inhabited by humans for something like 50,000 years, when it was settled by modern humans migrating out of Africa, down along the coast of Eurasia, and across the Pacific to Australia and the surrounding islands. Around 10,000 years ago, the people of New Guinea independently developed agriculture, and likely did so before the agricultural revolutions of West Africa, as well as those in South, Central, and North America. Some sources have the New Guinea agricultural revolution 
as the third in the world, preceded only by the much more famous ones in the Fertile Crescent and China. Skipping forward a lot, around 1300 CE, the western part of New Guinea was incorporated into the vast and mighty Javan seafaring empire Majapahit. In the early 1500s, so about 200 years later, following a civil war and the destabilizing arrival of Portuguese adventurers, Majapahit collapsed. Portuguese and Spanish sailors spotted the western bits of the island in the 1520s, and then in 1540, a Spanish explorer landed there, claimed it for Spain, and named it Nueva Guinea, because he thought the people living there looked like the West African people of what we now call Guinea. The island was sporadically explored, but it was mostly left to its own devices until the 1880s, when the Netherlands claimed the western half of the island, the British in Australia annexed the southeast quadrant, and the Germans took the northeastern remainder, renaming it Kaiser Wilhelmsland. This was that brief era of German colonialism preceding the First World War, when the German Empire scrambled to snatch up as much as yet uncolonized land as possible in order to establish themselves as a true great power in the late imperial age. They also claimed smaller islands nearby, which they called the Bismarck Archipelago, a name that has survived into today, including the islands of New Pomerania, which is now New Britain, and New Mecklenburg, which is now New Ireland. Of the three colonial powers with claims on New Guinea, only Germany ever did much with the island, and they did all of the usual colonizer things. They monopolized trade, they built plantations for growing coconuts, they forced the native people to labor on them, and they brutally punished anyone who objected. In 1914, following the outbreak of the First World War, Australian troops swiftly occupied Kaiser Wilhelm's land and the nearby islands largely out of fear that the German colony's ports and wireless stations would be used to support commerce raiders harassing British shipping in the Pacific. When the war ended in 1919, the former German colonies were made into League of Nations mandates, and they were administered by the victorious powers. Australia was awarded the administration of the former German New Guinea as a reward for its wartime service to the British Empire. The British now controlled the eastern half of the island, and the Dutch still held the western half. This effectively established the territorial division that persists today. The British-controlled half eventually became the independent nation of Papua New Guinea in 1975, while the Dutch-controlled half was annexed by Indonesia in 1969 under deeply contentious circumstances. And it is today the Indonesian provinces of Papua and West Papua. But let's step back a moment, because I did promise that there was a Japanese imperial connection too. The Japanese entered the picture in January 1942, a little over a month after the attack on Pearl Harbor and the beginning of Japanese hostilities against the Allied forces in the South Pacific, when they overwhelmed an outmatched and ill-equipped Australian Defense Force to capture New Britain, aka the former New Pomerania, just northeast of New Guinea. Most importantly, this gave the Japanese the Port of Rabaul, which would go on to become Fortress Rabaul their forward base for the brutal campaigns in the South Pacific, and probably the inspiration for First Gundam's Space Fortress Solomon. Rabaul would become such a strong position that it would never actually be captured, only isolated, surrounded, and then bypassed by the Allied forces making their way back north toward the Japanese home islands once the tide of the war turned. And with control of New Britain and Rabaul, the Japanese forces had unfettered access to the northeast coast of New Guinea, 
Their ultimate plan was to occupy and fortify the north part, then cross overland through the mountains dividing the island to capture the colonial capital, Port Moresby, denying the Allies their main base in the region and giving the Japanese a forward position from which they could easily threaten the Australian mainland. Step one for that was to capture the port town of Leh on the nearby Huon Bay. The Huon Bay is a large, roughly trapezoidal bay sandwiched between the mountainous Huon Peninsula to the north and a more gently sloping coastline to the south. Two rivers, the Markham and the Busu, terminate in Huon Bay. The Markham, on the side farther from the peninsula, is narrower but longer, traveling way into the interior of the island. The Busu, closer to the peninsula, is shorter but wider. Leh itself sits on the area of lowlands between the two rivers, closer to the Markham. There are highlands on each side, including Mount Shungal south of Leh. Hey, that sounds a lot like the Titan's New Guinea base. And I'm pretty sure that's because it is the site for the Titan's New Guinea base. Leh, like Rabaul, became a major Japanese base. But unlike Rabaul, it would eventually be attacked and recaptured by the Allies in late 1943, when they began their counterattack the one that would eventually push the Japanese imperial forces all the way back to Japan itself. This attack, by the way, involved one of the first and largest paradrop operations of the Pacific War, in which U.S. infantry and Australian artillery parachuted onto the lowlands behind the Japanese defenses. This was done in daylight, with fighters flying ahead of the transport planes, dispersing a smokescreen that would cover the paradrops, and news cameras rolling from observation planes to capture the whole thing. It went off almost flawlessly, and combined with a simultaneous amphibious landing and a force of Australian jungle fighters coming up through the interior of the island, the Japanese were forced to abandon Leh. After the war, Leh grew in size and importance, and today it is the second largest city in Papua New Guinea. It is a major industrial center and a cargo port. If the Titans are going to put a base in New Guinea, Leh seems like the natural choice. In fact, it sounds a bit like the other major Titan's base that we know about, the one that's on the industrial colony and space shipyard, Grips. But you might ask, why is there a base in New Guinea at all? Well, I have this theory that Gundam's creators had their eyes on regions where independence movements were fighting violently against occupation. It's on theme for the story, and... It's also the thread that ties together all the seemingly disconnected appearances in Gundam of places like Belfast, Cape Verde, Hong Kong, and even Quebec. If you include places where active fighting had not yet broken out, but where there was a semi-autonomous, ethnically and politically distinct population being dominated and exploited by a remote government, then you can add Odessa, Jabro, and Lob Lake to that list too. Well, to tie that thread to the Titan's New Guinea base. Since Indonesia occupied and then annexed the western half of New Guinea, the Free Papua Movement, or OPM, has fought for independence. In the late 1970s, the Indonesian military launched an offensive against the OPM, killing hundreds. But it was in the early 1980s that things really heated up, with thousands of people killed and an unsuccessful attack by OPM against the provincial capital in 1984. It has been a brutal conflict, with no shortage of atrocities, and one that deserves much more time than we can give it here. We will, I think, have to come back some other time. But, for now, I think it's enough to say that Zeta Gundam is a show about a decaying colonial order, 
set in the aftermath of a world-spanning and human history-altering war, a war that the old imperial powers won, but which so weakened them and so changed them as to make their eventual disintegration seem inevitable. The big questions being asked in Zeta are about how that disintegration will happen, what will rise from the ruins of the old order, and what atrocities will the old powers condone if it means holding on to their hegemony a little bit longer. If the writers were looking for inspiration in their own world, they would have found it on New Guinea. NASA launched Columbia, the world's first reusable spacecraft, on April 12, 1981, just a few short years before Zeta began. Sadly, I feel as though now the space shuttle program is largely remembered for its disasters, the Challenger disaster in 1986 and Columbia in 2003, in which a combined 14 astronauts died. But despite these tragedies, the space shuttles had the most reliable launch record of any rocket up until 2006. This could still be true, but the source that I found was from 2006, so I don't <laughs> know about the intervening years. They also accomplished 135 missions, built the International Space Station, which is still in orbit, and took 13 years and more than a third of the total shuttle missions to complete, launching and servicing the Hubble Space Telescope, visiting the Russian space station Mir, and launching a number of other satellites and probes. They conducted experiments and tested equipment, such as the Manned Maneuvering Unit, which was a sort of jetpack to allow astronauts to leave the shuttle untethered. Gee, that sounds a lot like a bit of technology we see in Gundam. When the space shuttle program was scaled back, these tests were also cut back as they were seen as unnecessarily risky. The initial idea behind the shuttle program was that they would make frequent launches. However, the pressure to make frequent launches is considered partly to blame for the Challenger disaster in 86, so that particular goal was abandoned. The U.S. military was very interested in reconnaissance applications, especially satellites. They created a special launch pad and everything in Vandenberg, California, but again, after the Challenger disaster in 1986, scaled back those plans and eventually gave up the idea altogether. Military launches were moved to using single-use rockets, which, it turns out, can be launched more frequently and are actually less expensive than the reusable shuttles. So, just a quick note. Mm -hmm. Hickory, from which they launched one of the shuttles in Zeta, is supposed to be very, very close to Vandenberg Air Force Base. I knew it sounded familiar. So the official name for a space shuttle is a space transport system, and it is composed of two solid rocket boosters, or SRBs, which are used at launch, then disconnect and fall back to Earth and are reused, one external tank, which is fuel for the three main engines during launch. It also disconnects and falls back to Earth, but because of the altitude at which this happens, it breaks up on reentry and cannot be reused. And finally, the orbiter, which is the part that we tend to picture when we picture the shuttle, and it carries the crew, the payload bay, the main engines. The solid rocket boosters operate for about the first two minutes after takeoff and get the shuttle to somewhere between 28 and 31 miles from Earth's surface, which puts it in the upper stratosphere. The external tank puts the shuttle at 72 and a half miles, 
almost but not quite safe orbit and orbital velocity. This explains why the Argama has to get so low to get Camille. He's using a booster. It's not going to get him all the way out to orbital velocity. They actually have to re-enter the atmosphere a little bit to get low enough to collect him. It also slows them down long enough for him to catch them. Probably going too fast for him to catch hold if they don't slow down in the atmosphere a bit. And they're assisted in that by a balut. This episode is really just bringing a bunch of things we've researched in the past together again. Paradrop operations, smoke screens, balutes. The solid rocket booster plus fuel on one of NASA's shuttles weighed about 1,500 tons. Their final weight on return is only 200 tons. So most of that is fuel. (laughs) The fuel in an SRB is more than a million pounds of solid propellant. One source describes it as having the consistency of a pencil eraser. Yeah. (laughs) Huh. This is made of ammonium perchlorate and aluminum with some added iron oxide as a catalyst to help with the burn and a binder to keep it all together. In addition to the fuel, each SRB consists of a motor, which has a case, propellant, igniter, and nozzle, a separation system, flight instrumentation, recovery avionics, and a whole bunch of other parts. The engineering is quite interesting, but also quite dense. I highly recommend the Wikipedia page, which I will link to in the show notes, if you'd like to understand exactly how all of the pieces of the SRB work together during the various stages of shuttle launch. These are incredibly powerful rockets. Each booster provides a maximum of 13,800 kilonewtons of force, which is approximately double that of the most powerful liquid propellant rocket of the same time period. And for a sense of scale, the thrust of an F-100 fighter jet is approximately 130 kilonewtons. No wonder they obliterated the Sudori when one of these went off inside it. If anything went wrong with an SRB during launch, it probably would not have been survivable. Once an SRB is ignited, you cannot abort launch. Like, once the burn begins, you have to wait for all the fuel to be spent before you can do anything, basically. It was an SRB system failure that was found to have caused the Challenger disaster. Since Camille has an uneventful, unsafe launch, I won't get into it, but again, one of the sources that I will link to in the show notes provides a detailed explanation for what exactly went wrong with the solid rocket booster that caused the Challenger explosion. SRBs also have parachutes, which is part of how they can be recovered and reused. Uh, The decoupling apparatus is actually a small explosive. They, they sort of explode free. And then at Apogee, they deploy their parachutes and float down to be retrieved and reused. The last shuttle launch was Atlantis on July 21st, 2011. Since then, focus has shifted away from Earth's orbit to developing craft capable of longer missions with the goal of eventually taking humans to Mars. But it's very easy to see how, in the early 80s, before either of the shuttle disasters had occurred, when it was still a quite new and exciting endeavor, it would have been on all the news, it would have been of great interest to anybody with any interest at all in space, 
It's easy to imagine the Zeta writers keeping a close eye on the news about every launch, about every bit of information and technology about how the shuttles worked. Oh, one trivia bit. This episode ends with an insert song, a quite beautiful little one, called Giniro Doresu, or Silver Dresses. It is sung by Moriguchi Hiroko, who will later be singing the second opening song for the Zeta opening, unless you're outside of Japan, in which case she won't be, because that was another one of the Neil Sadaka uh, songs that did not make it into the international releases. That will be Mizu no Hoshi e Aio Komate, from the Aqueous Star with Love. And she will later go on to sing some other Gundam songs. Next time on episode 2.22, Signed in Blood, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 21 and the best episode of Zeta so far. You can't fight in here, this is the war room. Nina cracks up. The worst mobile suit name, Gabufle. Deus Ex Machine Fa. Camille sits on someone's lap. There's more than one way to depopulate the Earth. The Punishment Room. Rock Paper Sirocco. And a bunch of new characters who I will identify by group affiliation and hair color. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, A firm slap across the face is a proven motivational technique, appropriate for school, in the office, and at home on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The wrongest Gundam opinion. I'm not sure we have ever stated a more wrong Gundam opinion ever. (laughs) The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. thing. Take two. The thing. (laughs) Nina, do the thing. The newest Gundam show has started coming out, which means that our watch list is getting longer. (laughs) Are they 20 minute episodes weekly? So we're staying exactly even, basically. (laughs) Every time we watch an episode, it's replaced by a new one. Yeah. And Camille then literally spills his guts out but not he doesn't literally spill his guts <laughs> yeah that's out. not <laughs> and, and what during, show were you watching <laughs> uh, Zeta unrated edition 
I'm, I'm transitioning from Camille's sexistness mm. into something else. Sexism. Sexism. Yes, that's the that's the word. I can't put any of this in the podcast. Why can't you put that in the podcast, Tom? I don't. I don't know, Nina. <laughs> I can't possibly imagine. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and. You hadn't done this yet? I had one that I was like working on for 20 minutes and then abandoned because <laughs> I was like, it didn't quite work. It was all about how uh, their place in the narrative structure makes uh, Buran Blutark and Ben Wooder seem a lot like Garma and Iselina or Ramba and Hamon, but I couldn't quite find a way to make it both make sense and be funny, so I abandoned it. Uh, you go first. Should I still say, and I'm Nina? Or should I just say, I'm Nina, and you'll say, and I'm Tom? Switch it up. <laughs> you want to go first? Confuse All right. the heck out of everybody. You just told me to go first. I'm asking what precisely you meant by that. <laughs> uh, what did I mean by that? I'm Tom, and I don't know what I meant by that. I'm Tom, but I don't know who Tom is, because I have no memory. That's dark. I'm cutting that. <laughs> you should. <laughs> it was said for your amusement and not our listeners. This is the Crimes Hour, apparently. <laughs> Dear Brooklyn neighborhood, please stop doing crimes, lighting your apartment on fire, getting into accidents. You're really throwing off our groove. You doing okay over there? (laughs) (laughs) It was very difficult not to laugh during that segment. (laughs) It has the strongest, how do you do, fellow kids, vibe. (laughs) I still don't think heated is a great word to use here, but... (laughs) You could just pick one of the meanings. You could. Camille and the spicy escape. Camille and the picante escape. An escape with a lot of emotions and explosions. I like that title. I don't know why they didn't use that one. Unless you're still working your way through Psycho Killer lyrics. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Did you really spend hours looking at satellite images? Don't judge me. Oh my god. Your research is great, but you are so inefficient.